Hi, my name is Deborah Kopakin, but you can call me Deb. I am the author of uh, seven books, the most recent of which is called Lady Parts. Um, and Femtech to me is the future and it should be the present. And my life was made more difficult and in many ways more traumatic by a lack of Femtech. And until we get Femtech moving and going forward, and until we start thinking about the way women's bodies works and how we can solve the problems of women's bodies breaking down, we will suffer as a society as a result. So Femtech is the future and it's a necessity. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. Before I intro our guest, I want to tell you about some really exciting updates at Femtech Focus. First, we have migrated our virtual community to a new, more interactive platform. We moved our previously publicly available databases of Femtech startups and exits from our website to this new community. You can find the Femtech Institute, which is a self-guided women's health accelerator, to learn how to fundraise, build, and scale your company. I host weekly office hours where I would love to meet with all of you one-on-one. We have an events calendar of all the upcoming women health events around the world, and you have the ability to add yours, too. Sounds awesome, right? Well, it's free to join and only $14.99 a month if you want to unlock the FemPro perks. Join the community by going to femtechfocus.org. The second big announcement is our upcoming virtual jobs fair with our partner at the Bowdoin Group on March 23rd from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Whether you're a student looking for an internship or post-graduation work, or if you're a professional switching industries, this is a great opportunity for you. We'll have an incredible keynote interview with the Bowdoin Group about the current state of the jobs market and what skills people need to work and be successful in femtech. Then you'll have the opportunity to meet virtually in different rooms with different companies and learn about their mission and open positions. If you are a women's health company hiring, this event is for you too. Whether you are looking for interns, a co-founder, making your first official hire, scaling your team, or filling out a whole department, Companies from big to small can register to have a virtual booth and meet with hundreds of the top femtech candidates around the world. Register at femtechfocus.org. Alrighty, so in today's episode, I interviewed Deborah Kopakin, the author of Lady Parts, a memoir. Deb is a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Shutter Babe, 
The Red Book, and In Between Here and April, among many others. A contributing writer at The Atlantic, she was also a TV writer on Emily in Paris, a performer, and an Emmy Award-winning news producer and photojournalist. Her photographs have appeared in Times, Newsweek, and The New York Times. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Oprah Magazine, and many more. We speak today about her seventh book, entitled Lady Parts, a memoir, where she describes her real-life journey through female health issues in a world prioritized for males and systems that are supposed to support the sick, but often keep them down. Be sure to get a copy of her book at your local bookstore. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Deb, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brittany. It's nice to see you. It is so nice to see you. I was delighted when I saw you booked an interview. Um, I actually heard about your book through a woman who works at Aetna, and I'm going to send this episode to her. So I'm calling you out. She works at Aetna, and um, I was calling her for some like mentoring. And she said, Britt, you have got to read this book, Lady Parts. It has changed my whole perspective. It's changed my life on women's health. I can't believe it. And so thank you, because that woman responded to my email because she was listening to your, I was actually audiobook, she said. Uh, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. So you well, so wait, so she works, she works at the Aetna Health Insurance yeah, Company. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I have to just stand back for a moment because that <laughs> blows my mind because it's really like, I mean, when we talk about innovation and femtech, what we need to innovate is the absurdity of the health insurance industry uh, right now. Yeah. Okay. Yep. But maybe we shouldn't get into that. Right now. <laughs> we'll, get like, there. Say, we'll save that to the end, but I am, I actually have to just like pause and think, Oh my God, a woman in the health insurance industry. I didn't even think about that when I was writing the book. I thought I was writing the book for people who are dealing with health insurance, not the people in the health insurance, but it makes me so happy to hear that. Yep. Yep. So thank you. Cause when I reached out and said, Hey, I'm working on innovating women's health. She's like, uh, yes. I've just heard about this. This is a thing when you talk. So, um, nice. and I saw your interview. I was like, oh, perfect. Full circle. Um, nice. Well, I'd love to start our interviews off with learning more about your background. Um, I know sure. we're going to get into it. I mean, we're talking about your book, which is a memoir. So essentially this whole podcast is your background, right? But why don't mm-hmm. you give our listeners just a, a preview of who you are previous to being an author of this book? Sure. Thank you for asking, Brittany. Um, I started off my career as a war photographer. So from 1988 to 92, I lived in Paris and I was based in Paris as a war photographer. So I covered Afghanistan during the Soviet pullout. I covered Israel during the first Intifada. I covered the Romanian revolution, the Soviet coup, blah, 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 blah. Lots and lots of news events that happened between 88 and 92. Then I moved to New York. I worked at ABC News at a show called Day One in long form journalism. Then I went and I worked for four years at Dateline NBC. Um, And then after that, I wrote a book called Shutter Babe, which was a memoir of my years as a war photographer. And that was sort of a a career pivot. So at 32, I pivoted to writing full-time, but within that writing full-time has been sort of a back and forth between, you know, sitting in a room by myself, this room, or going out into the world and working in various corporate entities, um, depending on how much money I needed at the time. Really, it's like I'm, I'm trying uh-huh. to kind of make yeah. my career work and be a writer at the same time. Uh-huh. Um, so I've written seven books. I don't have to list them. People can look them up. But the most recent, the reason why you reached out to me, is really the bookend to Shutter Babe. It's called Lady Parts. And it's a memoir of 
kind of marital destruction and the, the destruction of the body at the same time and the resurrection. So the arc of the story is, oh my God, my marriage is broken up. My body's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. And then you have the arc to, okay. I, I mean, I guess I'm okay now. There's, you know, there are issues still. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm so excited to get into the book with you. Um, when, when did you write it? When did it come out? So it came out in August of this past summer, so uh, 2021. I wrote it between 2019 to 2020. And I actually wrote it while I was doing three other full-time jobs. So I was a writer on Emily in Paris. So here was my, like at one three-month period, here was my schedule. From 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. I wrote Lady Parts. Then I would jump in the shower and from 8.30 to 9.30 I'd walk to my job in LA, Emmeline Paris, because that was my only exercise. Then I'd work in the writer's room until four. I'd walk back, get another half hour of exercise. And then I worked at a, at a at actually a femtech company called NeuroTrack, which was um, run by a woman and it's about Alzheimer's. So it's, a, it's about trying to get people to not get Alzheimer's. It's not a post-Alzheimer's, it's a pre-Alzheimer's. It's, do I have it in my, in, my, in, my, in my family history? How can I avoid it? And so I did a lot of the writing for that company. And then I would finish that work around 10 p.m. and then work on my, my writing at The Atlantic. I am a journalist for The Atlantic as well. I would pass out at midnight and then I'd start all over again. It was like, it was intense. I don't, re I don't recommend that schedule, but I also don't, like to turn down opportunities when they come because it's feast or famine as a writer. It's like you either have, you know, a lot of income or you have no income. And so when I have these moments where I can, you know, make a nest egg, I do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it reminds me a lot of uh, when I was finishing my PhD in genetics, I started my first company and I actually got funded. And I mean, you can't, you can't get funded and then be like, cool. Like I'll spend it in two years when I'm done with my doctorate. And so oh. there was a year where I was writing a thesis, an honors thesis on my discovery of small RNAs and E. coli, that blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, launching and traveling the world as like this uh, business owner of, you know, Faramore DNA-based dating app. And it was wow. hell. It was hell. I had no friends. I had no yeah. social life. I, I apologized to my dog so often about how the lack of walks we were going on. And I just kept telling my dog, I had one at the time. I now have three, um, but I kept telling him, mommy's doing this for us. Mommy's doing it for us. I promise one day we'll have a big backyard with fenced in. Like, <laughs> I mean, listen, I had three kids when I was doing this. Two of them were luckily in college at the time, but the little one and I, people said like, how did you do this? And I said, I had two men back in New York taking care of my son. So I had my ex-husband who had my son half the time and I had my new partner who had my son the other half the time. And otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do this at all. So, you know, we were, we have to talk about, and, and I think we, we are behooved to talk about when men support us, yeah. like women have constantly supported men, right? When men step in to say, you've got this, I've got you. And mm -hmm. that was an amazing thing. Oh, I love that. And why did you write Lady Parts? So I wrote Lady Parts because I had to. You know, the best books come about, and I'm not saying my book is the best book, but I'm saying for me, the books that I'm most proud of mm -hmm. come about because there is an internal force that will not be silenced unless it comes out. And Writing to me from the age of four when I started writing has always served as a form of therapy as well. Meaning 
it's a way for me to process trauma. It's a way for me to process what's happened. And Lady Parks is really the story of trauma. And it came about because I was looking down in the shower at my body and there's scars all over my stomach from various, um, there was a hysterectomy, there was a trachelectomy, my, my appendix was taken out, um, you know, just like all over my body are these scars. And when I looked at the scars, I thought to myself, oh my God, each of those body parts represents a period in time. And each of those body parts is weirdly a perfect metaphor for that period in time. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, uterus, when I had my uterus taken out, it was at the same time that I lost my female mentor. And by the way, female mentors are very important, but my female mentor was Nora Ephron, the filmmaker. She died the day after I lost my uterus. And it was also the same day, literally the same hour that my daughter got her period. So here you have sort of the three wow. generation of, of women. You know, my mentor dies, I get my uterus out. My daughter picks up the reproductive baton all in the same two day span. Um, the, you know, breast, the, the second chapter was about getting a breast cancer diagnosis while taking my child to college and losing my marriage. So each of these, Body parts was really seminal to that plot point in the life. And so that's why I named each chapter, the six chapters after a body part. And then that gets you through the book. Wow. Yeah. Give our listeners a brief overview. I'm sure that all of them want to read it. They, they should get it on Amazon or where else can they buy it? Is Amazon the best place you'd recommend? Amazon is fine. You know, um, we all have feelings about Amazon one way or the other, whatever your feelings are, you know, go for it. Um, there's also bookshop.org, which will hook you up with the closest indie bookstore. I really urge people when they can to go into the indie bookstore yeah. and talk to the bookstore owner. And even if they don't have lady parts in there, maybe order it and get it from the indie bookstores because we we need our indie bookstores. We need yeah. them, you know, yeah. and, and by the way, Barnes and Noble at this point is not an indie bookstore, but Barnes and Noble is a perfectly legitimate um, place to buy a book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love to study at Barnes and Noble. Like they have that little cafe. Yeah. I like to be surrounded by books. So yeah, right. I, I mean, I think, yeah, um, bookstores are important. Yeah. Go to a local bookstore, get lady parts. But yeah. prior to that, here's a little abstract. Deb, can you tell us um, just an overview, a quick summary of what, what is this book about? So the book is a, um, it is the story of the end of a marriage and the destruction of a body and how those two things resolve themselves. It is also an indictment of our healthcare system. It is also at the same time, I do a lot of research in the book. So the book is my story, but every time I had an opportunity to bring out statistics or data, I did because I thought it was really useful to understand that this is just not a me problem. This is an everyone problem. And what's been fascinating for me is I get emails, at least one a day, sometimes 15 a day from readers saying, and this surprised me at first, and though it doesn't surprise me anymore, they say, you've told my story. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't, I told my story, but my story just happens to have a few more twists and turns. You know, I had a really, really bad health journey. So just to give you a summary, 
I had a hysterectomy because I had undiagnosed adenomyosis for 16 years. Adenomyosis is sort of the cousin to endometriosis. It's when the uterus has all these growths and you have terrible periods. And we need to talk about how much blood we're bleeding every month, ladies, because it's important. And the reason that I didn't get diagnosed for 16 years is because I didn't explain to my doctor that I was bleeding more than normal because I didn't know what was normal. Yeah. And nor do any of us. And let me just say, if you have a diva cup and you're producing more than one ounce of blood every half hour as I was, that's not normal. That's not normal. Okay, so I got the hysterectomy for the adenomyosis. I had stage zero breast cancer, but I didn't have enough money or health insurance to get a mammogram or to get any treatment. So I had to wait until I got a job at a health company to get the mammogram and to get the treatment and the MRI. And then I got fired from the health company, which was not really a health company, it was more like advertising, um, because I'd been absent so many times. And when I showed HR the number of absences, by the way, that HR guy has been fired as well for the way that he treated me. But those absences were all at Sloan Kettering. I was fired for getting breast cancer treatment, essentially. Um, after the breast cancer, then I had um, heart issues because I was so anxiety filled because I no longer had a job and I had three kids, two of whom were in college and I was paying two college tuitions on my own and had to pay for a babysitter for the little one so I could get another job. So heart is another chapter. Then my cervix became diseased. I had pre-cancer of the cervix. I had to get the cervix removed, which should have been removed during the hysterectomy, but I was given bad data, told that the cervix played a role in sexual pleasure, but guess what? It doesn't. So, um, I now had to have a second major eight to 10 hour surgery to get the cervix removed. After which two weeks later, I went to the emergency room and said, I'm not feeling well, I'm not feeling well, it hurts, I feel tugging. They sent me home with an antibiotic and said, have fun, goodbye. A week later, a week later, my then 20 year old daughter, who's now in medical school, possibly because of all this, by my 20 year old daughter, found me wandering the apartment with a Tupperware container full of blood clots that were shooting out of me. And I, it was like a howitzer. I mean, I, I can't explain it and I know it's gross, but we have to talk about the gross. We have to talk about the gross because giant blood clots were shooting out of me. I was collecting them because I didn't know if they were my internal organs or not. I just knew that the stitches, I felt like the stitches at the top of my vaginal canal had come undone and everything was leaking out of me. My viscera was coming out of me and my daughter saved my life. But, but I wouldn't allow her to call an ambulance. Why? Because I just read an article about $8,000 ambulance bills yep. and I didn't have any money. Yep. So what did we take to the emergency room? Not Uber, but Uber pool because I was trying to save money. We took Uber pool to the emergency room. And if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about how effed up our healthcare system is, I don't know what does. Anyway, whew, cervix, then vaginas, the, the, the last chapter, and then, then I didn't expect the final chapter of the book, but I got COVID. So the last chapter is, is lungs. I got a really, really bad case of COVID on March 18th, 2020. Why? Again, because of bad science. So I went for a UTI. A lot of us have UTIs. A lot of us don't know that we need vaginal estrogen to treat UTIs, even if you've had breast cancer. I'm gonna say that again. If you have 
bad UTIs or recurring UTIs, go talk to your doctor immediately, mostly gynecologists, about getting vaginal estrogen. It is a cure for, 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 for recurring UTIs. So I go to the, to the urgent care with a UTI. They give me Keflex, a prescription for Keflex. I tell the guy, this is March 9th. I said, dude, it's not going to work. I know my body. I've had recurring UTIs my whole life. Keflex is, is off my list of, of, of antibiotics that work any longer on my body. Alas, only Cipro works. I need a prescription for Cipro. He said, I know I'm a doctor. I know better than you. Sent me out the door. 10 days later, I come back to his urgent care. No, sorry, nine days later, March 18th. I go back to the urgent care. I shout through the door because everybody in that urgent care is coughing. It's New York City. They're, they all have COVID. They're all dying. And I'm screaming, I need Cipro. Give me Cipro. And they said, no, you have to come back in and pee in a cup. And I was like, you have my pee from last week. You don't need any more pee. So yeah. they made me come in, pee in a cup, sit in that room of COVID without masks for 40 minutes. And the next day I came down with COVID. Yeah. Unbelievable. Sorry for yelling, but oh yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, we uh we talked previous to uh recording that we we get loud when we get passionate. So I oh. totally get it. My listeners know I do. Um I am just I'm overwhelmed with questions, with sure. concern, with empathy, with love, with <laughs> anger. Like I have a lot of wide-ranging emotion. Um, you know, before we dive into all these little pieces. Is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Like, was there any hope at the end of the book or do you feel hopeful now? Oh, I wish I could say yes. Yeah, yeah. But I, and it's not that I don't have hope. It's that I cannot believe, I cannot believe that my friends in London are getting four um, rapid tests a week sent to them at their house individually. And I just applied to get my four rapid tests sent to my house for the, the three people that are in, you know, like it's ridiculous. We're, yeah, yeah. What about people, you know, what about homes that have 10 people in them? Oh, so then only four out of the 10 people can get the test. We have not figured out healthcare in this country. Oh, yeah. It is a tragedy, tragedy and a travesty. Mm-hmm. And what I'm left with at the end of the book and in my life in general is we have an ageism issue. We have a corporate structure issue. We have an income inequality issue and we have a healthcare issue. And until we deal with all of these, I don't have hope, but I do have hope talking to somebody like you who's young and female and trying to change the world. It's when I speak to, like I I go on a lot of Zooms these days like older lady Zooms. And the older lady Zooms sometimes invite their daughters. And it's when the daughters get on that we really get into it because they see me as the cautionary tale. And they're like, I'm 22, that better not be me. And I'm happy to be that cautionary tale because I wanna shout to them, like, this is your job right now. You have to figure out how to change this. We have to fundamentally change our corporate and healthcare system in the United States. Let's talk about the corporate and healthcare system. Um, sure. You talk about uh, uh, corporate policies uh, that force women out of their jobs. So let's let's tap on that a little bit. What was your experience, and what do you think? Like the is 
you know, I'm, I have a belief that corporations are set up based on a male metabolism for the heating and cooling systems. It's based on a male hormone cycle of a 24 hour day. Like there's so much about corporations that are male centric and women trying to just fit in. So what's your view? So right now I'm actually, I have a Substack publication called Lady Parts that I, that grew out of my book. And the reason I have a Substack publication is because I cannot find a job. I'm 55 years old. And I have sent out over a hundred resumes, a hundred, and I am a Golden Globe nominee. I'm an Emmy Award winner. I've had multiple best-selling books. I'm a journalist at the Atlanta. I mean, I don't know how much better my my resume could be. And nobody, it's not that even no, I'm not getting hired. I'm not getting called back. 55-year-old women are not considered work worthy. And that is a problem. So I'm doing right for my Substack right now. I decided, well, I want to look into ageism and I want to go to the source. So I talked to a female lawyer who also got kicked out of her job as a lawyer at this big firm, started her own firm that's really just dealing with women who are being aged out. And she said the saddest thing to me. Her name is Nicole Page. She's an amazing lawyer in New York City if you need an employment lawyer. But Nicole said to me, and I'm going to be writing this in my Substack. When you, what I tell young women who are in their 20s and 30s who come to me with contracts, I say to them, What are you going to do when you're 49? What are you going to do when you get forced out of your job? And they say to me, What are you talking about? What do you mean? And she said, You will be forced out. It is not a bug, it is a feature of corporate America. Men are considered the bread earners, the, the male of the house. They're not going to lose their jobs until they're 65 and get, and get, you know, and, and retire. Women are thought to be over the hill at 49. And without saying too much, because it's an ongoing issue right now, I have a close family member who's been working at a healthcare company for 17 years, earning them millions, and her 50th birthday is coming up, and guess what's happened to her? And it's the same story every time. I don't even have to say what's happening to my sister without what's happening to every woman. This is how it happened, and it happened to me at a giant PR company where I was working at the time, a healthcare PR company. You turn 49, you're doing great. Like in my case, when I was working at the PR firm, I was featured in the, in the company magazine as one of the 10 people in the thousands of employees we had to look out for. So there was a big feature. There was, they took, had a photographer take my photo. They did a big interview with me. I was kicking ass. I was 49 and I was kicking ass. And suddenly, literally right before my 50th birthday, I'm put on what's called a PIP, which is a performance improvement plan. And as Nicole Page told me, this is what they do. It is the process. They see you're coming upon your 50 years. Often when you turn 50, some economic benefit happens to you, like some stuff kicks in in their corporate job and they don't want to have to pay this out. And so they put you on a PIP so that they can protect themselves legally saying, well, she had, you know, she had issues. She wasn't liked by her, you know, her people, or I had 360 reviews at my job and all of them, I was told were kicked back because there was no negative on there at all. So one of my colleagues came to me and said, I don't know what's going on, but they told me I had to write something negative. So I told them, well, she can get a little enthusiastic sometimes, over-enthusiastic sometimes. And instead of putting all the nice things on there, on the PIP, it says too enthusiastic or whatever it was, you know? And this is happening to close relatives of mine and it's happening to people that you know 
who are 49, 50, 51, right in that age range, you're forced out of the workforce. So the issue for women is either you're going to work at an all-female company, look for an all-female company where there are women who are in their 60s and even 70s. You know, Nicole works at a law firm where there's a 70-year-old partner and a 60-year-old partner and her because this is important to them. They want to show you, like, we can't just stop working. Who can afford to stop working? The men can afford to stop working at 45, 50 because they've worked in banking or they've worked in high tech. Assets and stock. And they were taught. Yeah, yeah, they've, 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 they've made their pile of cash. Women, we haven't for the most part. And so we need to keep working, not only because we need the money, but because Frankly, I don't want to stop working. Like maybe in 65, I'll feel different. I love to be useful. I want to be useful every day. And so to be forced out of a job, to be forced out of your 401k, to be forced out of your benefits. And then all of a sudden we're talking healthcare, right? You lose your job, you lose your salary. And oh my God, you're paying 23, now $2,400 a month in COBRA fees, a rent, a rent's worth of COBRA fees every month that you no longer have your salary. Mm-hmm. Who made up this system? Men. Well, if you uh, if you argue that when a woman hits 50, some certain benefits start to kick in and she becomes more expensive, is she more expensive than a male employee? Or that, no, you, but that corporations are more willing to pay it for him? Corporations are more willing to pay for the man because they view him still as the head of the household. And were he to lose his job, his entire infrastructure would fall apart versus the woman as seen still crazily enough. I mean, I'm a single mother now, right? I'm a single mother. The woman is still seen as, oh, she's got a man protecting her. Yeah. 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 Wow. This is, uh, this is crazy and (laughs) sad and accurate. You know, it's, it's all the things. Um, um, what do I want to ask you about next? Um, we're talking about, uh, let's talk about income inequality. Sure. So how does income yeah. inequalities between men and women have anything to do with our health? Okay. Well, I will give you a, because I can speak from a personal example for all of these issues, which is why I also wrote this book. Like I can talk about income equality from a specific story and I'll give you my specific story. I had breast cancer. I had just, um, been kicked out of, uh, this healthcare company. I'll call, I'll put it in quotes, this healthcare company for spending too much time at Sloan Kettering. I was desperate for the MRI that was going to prove that I no longer had the breast lump. And that MRI was going to cost $6,000. I didn't have $6,000. Who has an extra $6,000 in the round? Not me. So I was looking for another writing job and, you know, they had me over a barrel, right? So this company that hired me, um, offered me $39,000 a year, but I could write for other outlets. And I was like, I, that is not, I have two kids in college. I've got babysitting costs. That's not my, that 39 is not even going to cover my babysitting. I need 65 just to pay the babysitter. Like I need 65 and then half of that pays the babysitter. That's the cost of babysitting. Like where am I supposed to get the rest of the money? They said, well, you can freelance for magazines. And, but I needed the health insurance so badly. I mean, I came back with 200, they said, no, I came back with 150. They said, no, I came back with a hundred. Like I just kept lowering my number until they said, we can only hire you at 39. That is the budget we have. And so I was like, all right, well, I need the health insurance. And it was more, I mean, that was, that was worth a lot to me. So I took this job at $39,000 a year. 
The man sitting next to me had gone to my alma mater. Um, we were very good friends. Um, I liked him a lot. When he was let go two years later, or a year and a half later, he was walking with me out of the office on his last day. And he said, they, can I say the bad word? Can I, can I curse? He said, they fucked you. I know they fucked you. I heard them fuck you. And you need to go back and ask for the money that they're now not paying me because I was earning $200,000 while you were earning 39. And I've wanted to tell you, and I just didn't think I could, but now that I've been fired, I'm going to tell you, you are worth more than 200,000. You should be paid 200,000 and they're a-holes for doing that. Yeah. Are you pissed that he didn't tell you earlier? No, because he's worried about his job. Like, you know, the, the problem is we are, we, we, salary um transparency is not appreciated by the bosses right and you can get fired you can get fired for being transparent about your salary that is considered a fireable offense to tell a co-worker what you're earning which is all kinds of fucked up as well right yep yep yeah i uh i had a job won't mention but they when i got hired they said don't tell anyone what you're making and I said, oh, the fact that they, you've started my employment with that, I'm telling all of the women. Um, and so, and I made it a point, like, I'm just going to seek out the women. And you know what? I asked the other ladies, only half of them would tell me what they were making. The other half said, I, I don't want to tell you. And it was like, because like, I couldn't understand why. And I, and I try to make this argument, like, if we all can know, then we can all know we're being treated fairly and stuff, you know, and, and obviously long story short, I wasn't even actually getting paid enough to pay my bills. And I told my boss, I'm not making it to pay my bills. I'm increasing in my debt every month. Yeah. uh, He suggested I make makeup tutorials on YouTube. A woman with a PhD in fucking human genetics. <laughs> um, and I mean, I put mascara on, but like, I'm not some too, like makeup guru, like, but that was his suggestion. I was so dumbfounded. I just was like, uh, okay. You know, but like, yeah. So, um, what well, I, I mean, did the same, I, I did the same thing, by the way, when I was working at Dateline NBC, because I was trying to get my boss at the time, um, Neil Shapiro, who was a wonderful boss and is a feminist. And when I came to him after I'd had two babies and I had two children under the age of two, I was like, can I work four days a week, please? I just, I can't function. I'm not getting enough sleep. I need a day to do grocery shopping. Like I'll get all the work done. I promise you, I just can't come into the office five days a week. And he said, absolutely. I want to start this in our, you know, in Dateline. Um, Let me help you. And he kicked it up to um, a vice president who was a female who's like, I did it. You can do it too. You know, but like, by the way, working as a TV producer and working as a vice president are completely different. Like I was flying around the country all the time. I was doing stories. I was like on planes, like it's different. But when I was trying to um, come up with a proposal for this, I went around and asked my female colleagues, what are you earning? What are you earning? What are you earning? We got to like bond together because nine of them were pregnant. Like I was the one that's going to have the baby first. I was like, we need to like figure this out. Like, should we ask for four fifths pay? Like, what are you earning? How can we work this so that that our boss will be happy, who's wonderful and wants to do this with us, and NBC will be happy. Nobody would give me their income. Yeah. yeah. And 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 I tried to say the same thing you did was like, you are adva- you're 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 giving advantage, unfair advantage, to the boss. You're yeah. giving them the playbook. Like they have all the playbooks. We have nothing. We, yeah. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is a way of 
of them keeping us down. Yeah, it's enslavement kind of, right? Yeah. Oh, then how would you question it, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I want to just, uh, oh, wait, by the way, how does that affect your health? So, I mean- Oh, right, I'm sorry, I didn't answer that part. So, okay, I mean, on a very basic level, if you can't afford healthcare, you get sicker. So my breast cancer is a perfect example of this, right? I felt a breast lump right here as I was driving my son to college. I was like, okay, I got to deal with this breast lump, but I'm in between jobs and I don't have healthcare. And because of some blip in my healthcare system, I like somehow I didn't have it anymore. I paid and I didn't, whatever. I didn't have healthcare. It happens all the time. So I had to find a place to get the mammogram. Luckily, the breast center of Harlem, which is where I was living at the time up in Harlem, had a free breast cancer screening a month away. And then once I got the mammogram to tell me I had what I thought was breast cancer, stage zero, it's not so bad. Like, But I still needed to then go to Sloan Kettering and get treatment. But I had to wait for that treatment so I could be told free that I had the breast cancer, but I needed money and health insurance to get treatment for that breast cancer. Now, had I not found the job that I found, who knows how much it would have grown, right? Who knows? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've had health insurance and um, I had a I had a bacterial infection. I got put on an antibiotic that turns out I was allergic to. And, oh my God. Uh, and I had thousands and thousands of bills that took me probably three and a half years to finish paying off. And I had insurance through that whole experience. And like my only treatment was intravenous Benadryl and steroids for the allergic reaction, but like that cost thousands of dollars. Um, Which it shouldn't have. I, I'm dealing with a bill right now that I'm not paying because I got frozen shoulder from a, a my second vaccine, my second COVID vaccine went into the bursa, not into the um, muscle. So here's a, if people are watching this right now and, and for people that are just on the podcast, you take three fingers when you get your booster you put your three fingers here and make sure that the needle goes in under those three fingers. Otherwise it can go because again, these needles are created for men, not women. The length of the needle was created for a male arm. You know how much thicker a male arm is than our arms? I got skinny little arms. Like it went straight into the bursa. I had frozen shoulder. I had to go to hospital for special surgery, get a cortisone shot, a, 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 an MRI guided cortisone shot. $1,700 later, like I, I went to the US government. I was like, you need to pay this because I'm not paying it. Like this is, this is a COVID related injury. I mean, we should never have to pay for any of this, right? It, yeah. It's so ridiculous. When I lived in Paris, I lived in Paris for four years. Anytime I got sick, I went to a doctor. I never paid. When I wanted my birth control pills, I went to the pharmacy. I paid three francs, which at the time was like 50 cents, like yeah, nothing. Yeah. So I actually lived in France too. I was a foreign exchange student in high school and um, I had gotten in a kind of a, a, I had an injury, we'll say, and I had to go to the hospital. I had to go do like an urgent care. And then they sent me to an ear, nose and throat specialist. And I got put on all these meds and I had to like go for a checkup. All in all, I think it was like 30 euros. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Like, what is that? 45 bucks to go to an urgent care, ear, nose and throat specialist the next day, a follow-up appointment with them. Like, you know, all those meds, all of it in total was like 40 euros. Insane. Yeah. Totally insane. Yeah. Um, and by the way, you know, back in the day, like when, um, when we couldn't get rapid COVID tests at home, you know, my friends in Paris had them, you know, they had them back 
in in May of 2021. Like they could get them way before we could get them. Or right, like then, you know, when we couldn't, you know, there was like a shortage right as Omicron was coming. All my French friends would like go to the local pharmacy and just get a test. Like there's no issue, right? And I mean, I don't expect you to be able to shoot me the answer in the next 30 seconds, but like, okay. what the hell is wrong with us? <laughs> like, how do we fix this? <laughs> you know? Well, there is a, um, the healthcare lobby spends more money than anyone, right? So um, they are fighting to keep legislation that keeps the status quo in place. Um, so your friend who works at Aetna is part of a system, right? that is hurting all of us, unfortunately. And we will have to dismantle that system and people will lose their jobs. Like people like your friend might lose her job and she'll have to transfer over into a government job working in healthcare. I don't know how it works. I would love to ask, you know, how do you do it, France? How do you do it, Finland? How do you do it, NHS? The NHS is an amazing system in London, right? You know, um, what is that that actor's name? The one that was in um, Catastrophe, Rob. Oh God, I can't remember his last name. His name is Rob, and he moved over to London because his son had a brain tumor. His son ended up dying, but like he stayed in London because he said the NHS is the reason we came here, and it's the reason we're staying here. Because why would we go back to the United States with their insane healthcare system? It's crazy. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, well. What do you hope to, you know, come out of this book? Like, you know, obviously a lot of conversations are happening. Women are feeling less alone. You're literally telling their story that they thought was just theirs, but it's not. It's a huge, all women's stories. What, what's some of your hopes for the, as a response to your book? The normalization of discussions of female viscera, the normalization of discussions of money, the normalization of discussions of unfair business practices, the normalization of discussions of ageism. Um, I'm probably leaving a lot of these. That, I talk about a lot of topics in this book and I talk about a lot of topics on purpose. It's almost like it's my story, but it's also the vehicle for the medicine for our, for our sick healthcare system, right? I want you to look at the statistics. I want you to know why we're in the place we're in. You know, um, stock buybacks, for, for um, healthcare companies, that's crazy. Like we shouldn't, you know, the, 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 the way that healthcare companies make profits, the CEOs of healthcare companies earning multiple millions of dollars, that shouldn't be the way things work. The lobbying efforts, that shouldn't be the way things work. So in essence, the book is my story, but it's also my way of, and this is such a PR term and I hate it, but raising awareness. Like it's, it's my way of raising awareness without it being boring. You know, it's not a government white paper. It's my story. And it's essentially like, I am the cautionary tale. I am what can happen to all of you if we don't fix this. Absolutely. Yeah, you brought up so many great points today. And I actually don't think we talk about ageism enough on the show. We talk obviously about sexism, right? And the inequalities between sexes and gender. We talk about, um, you know, 
homophobia with transgender and their pelvic floors. And, you know, uh, we talk about racism and black women dying more than white women, but we don't talk enough about ageism. And, you know, it actually is very astute because today I was uh, reworking Femtech Focus's website and I'm trying to find, you know, license-free stock photos of women. And I typed in like old woman and it's like really, really old women with these like leathery skins. Like yeah. they're like, oh, you want an old woman? We're going to show you this native woman in the, you know? And I'm like, okay, these are great, beautiful women. But like, can I just have like a regular photo of like a 50 or 60 year old woman, some gray, like on a computer? Like, no, apparently not. Like that is, you're either really well, young in your perfect condition or you're a very happy little girl, or you're like some old leathered woman in a tribe, you know? Well, is it any wonder that all these women on the Upper East Side where I live have Botox like everywhere on their face? They're just trying to keep that young face, which whatever, it, every, it's a choice. Everybody can have their own choice, not my choice. Um, I wanna give you a perfect example of ageism that happened last weekend, which is, so there, I, I break down ageism into three buckets. There's the getting fired for being 49, the inability to get hired, that's number two, and the third part is hate speech. And we accept hate speech in older people more than like in ways that we would never expect. Like I'm a Jew and a woman. Like if somebody called me the K word, like that would be awful. If somebody, you know, like called me a slut, that would be awful. We, we consider that terrible at this point. So I made a mistake last weekend. I wrote an open letter. This, I don't know if anyone's heard the story. It's like this TikTok story about West Elm Caleb, about this guy, hashtag West Elm Caleb, about this guy who mistreated all these women. Um, and they got together and they sort of created this TikTok ban. And I wrote this funny tongue in cheek open letter saying, women, we have so much bigger fish to fry. You know, let's focus on what's important here. And I addressed it to millennial women because Caleb, the Caleb of the story is 25. And so my kids are 24 and 26, the tail end of millennials. Well, I was attacked on Twitter for addressing my letter to millennials because millennials are hitting 40 soon and they have jobs and they have marriages and kids. And I made a mistake. I made a dumb mistake based on statistics, bad statistics. I should have addressed my grievances to Zoomers because it's the Zoomers that are on TikTok. But really that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story is we have so much bigger fish to fry. But at first, people were just saying on Twitter, you're stupid, you don't know what you're talking about, it's not millennials, it's Zoomers, okay. And I said, you're right. Like I was just, you know, I, I responded to all of my haters and I said, you're right, I'm wrong. Let me edit it, I edited it. And then I went about my day. I took a walk, I did my laundry, I you know, went to my friends, it was Saturday night, I watched the football game. And when I left the football game, I looked at my tweets and it was a barrage of hate speech saying, go take your metal musil, grandma, fuck you. Um, and, and it was like grandma being used as an epithet. It was shut up, old lady. Like change the word old to black, change the word old to disabled, change the word old to Jew. Like you can't do that to blacks, disabled Jews, but it's okay to have hate speech against old people. It's the only hate speech we readily accept and laugh at. We like, use it for humor. Birthday card, Pardon? 
Yeah, I'm thinking about oh, like yeah. birthday cards are like, oh, you're so old now. And like there a lot more times it's humorous about how old you are. And like, you know, uh, those cartoon old ladies, you know, or on a beach or something, you know, rather than honoring your wisdom. And it's not even about, yeah, exactly. Not, it's not even about honoring wisdom. It's You're like, like, just be neutral at least. Come on. <laughs> it's like, I mean, okay, I'm 55. This is the face of a 55 year old, right? My hair hasn't grayed yet. I'm lucky I have a little bit right here, but whatever. Like, I, I, I look like this. I feel 22 inside. I have all the energy of a 22 year old. I have so much more information than a 22 year old, so much more experience than a 22 year old, but those 22 year olds are getting higher. I, for, for my ageism story, I interviewed this wonderful journalist named Emily Nunn, who is out there on Twitter screaming about ageism every single day. You should interview her. She's so funny. She has this subset called the department of salads. And every day she puts out a new salad and she's hysterical, but she goes after a newspaper for hiring younger people and not hiring older people because she and I both actually applied. There were 40 jobs open at this newspaper. I applied for 10 of them because I was like, oh, I could do 10 of those in my sleep. Didn't even get called back. Yeah. Didn't even get called back. And the people that they hired were in their 20s. And okay, great. I'm so glad you can give jobs to people in their 20s. But like you have to hire an equal number across the board of men, women, old, young, black, white, brown, green. Like you can't just hire young people and expect that newspaper to reflect what the world is. And guess what? That newspaper is not doing many stories on ageism because nobody's thinking about it because they're not there yet. And that kind of relates to our industry of femtech where there's a lot of uh, fundraising and investment. I do not see middle-aged women getting investment from you know, venture funds. They don't, they don't, they fund either young, beautiful women who are also, you know, smart and witty and badass and tough uh or they fund men of all ages from high school to 60s you know like but women it's like a specific look a specific attitude a specific age and i mean this is coming from someone who i attend pitch competitions as a job right like i literally see people and i i don't see middle-aged or older women getting funded no it's a real real problem look one of my best friends is amanda hesser she's the founder of food52.com right which is a massively successful, she sold her business. Like she's just done so well. But I saw her have this idea in her kitchen. I saw her come up with the idea in the kitchen and I saw what it took to fundraise. And believe it, I mean, she had to fundraise at 10 times the, 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 the velocity as a man in her situation. She did it. I mean, she is, she's got the gumption and she did it and she got it done and she's a success story, but she's a rare success story. And that should, it should not be rare that a woman gets funding and can sell her business. Now, this has been so much fun. I want to be friends with you. Uh, okay. Let's go fight the fight. Let's go march. Okay. Let's go do stuff. Um, but I have two last questions for you that our listeners sure. really love. Um, and I'm really excited to hear your opinion because a lot of times we have um, investors or innovators on the show. And so as an author and a writer, it's, it's going to be really exciting to hear your answers. Um, we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs. So what's an area in women's health that still needs innovating, needs a solution? Well, let me give you a different kind of answer to that, which is that I am very, 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 very grateful for the invention of Substack. I think Substack is a game changer, particularly for older women. What is so? Substack? 
Substack is a CMS platform, a computer management system platform for um, journalists to get paid for their work as their own brand. Mm. So for example, right-wing writer Barry Weiss has a Substack, Maddie Iglesias has a Substack, Emily Nunn, who couldn't get hired at the, at the Post, has the Department of Salad Substack, right? I have my own Substack called Lady Parts. Now I'm slowly building it up. Um, but what it does is it'll, it's a subscription-based service where Substack takes a small percentage of the money and they do all the money stuff, which we writers are not good at. So yeah. you, you sign up, it takes a while to sign up and like get your publication going. But once you have your publication going, um, then you can charge whatever you want for a monthly fee, whatever you want for a yearly fee. And then you have your founding uh, members who can pay, you know, at first I had 180, which I'm a Jew, so it's 10 times high. Now I have 360 because people seem willing to pay that for founding membership. 360 is, you know, uh, 20 times high. High is the word for 18 in Hebrew. It's also the word for life. So Jews like to give money in, in, in multiples of 18. Side note. So what I would say is in the healthcare field, because I'm writing about women's health, the invention of Substack has been phenomenal and I'm really, really grateful for it. And I'm trying to grow my publication. And, and that is what I'm focusing on because I can't get hired to do anything else. So it's been, it's been horrible to not get hired, but it's also, it's lit my fire and Substack was there when I needed it to move forward. So I'm using that platform. So we need to invent more things like Substack that allow women to say, oh, this system's not working, fuck it. I'm gonna do it on my own, yeah. right? More yeah. fuck it apps, yeah. <laughs> more fuck it programs. Yeah. Um, now that is sort of like on an individual level, on a massive scale level. And cause the men we know are not gonna do this. We need women to solve the problem of a nationalized healthcare system. We need women to band together and say, this lack of a nationalized healthcare system hurts women the worst, hurts black women worse than white women. And we need to all band together, black, white, we need to get everyone in a room, all the uteri in a room and lack of uteri for me, but like anyone that once had a uteri or wants to have a uteri, like we need to get us all in a room and say, how do we solve the problem of a national healthcare system right now? Not tomorrow, but like right now. I, somebody said, Britt, like, um, you know, the world, it, it's a man's world because the engineers for so long have been men. And now we have like maybe 20% women engineers, but like your iPhone, essentially the entire thing was made by a man in the male gaze. And so what you're talking about is like healthcare system has been made up in the male gaze. And what if we took the female gaze to create systems? Like you can't even fathom like how different it could be, right? With that, with that well difference. I can fathom it. I, I can tell you what would be different, like on a macro and a micro level, just on a micro level, right? On a micro level, there is a study that showed that Viagra in women protects you from period cramps for four hours without any side effects whatsoever. The man that discovered this went back to NIH and said, oh, can I have funding to to do this, um, to do a larger study. And they said, no, he went back again. Can I have money to do a larger study? And the men who were making the decision said, we don't see dysmenorrhea as a problem, right? So micro level, we need to get women at the decision level for who gets the funding. Yeah. Micro level, we need to get, like if you get a replacement hip or knee, you're getting a replacement hip or knee made for a man. We need to get women into the, 
making these actual physical objects that go into our body so that we can have the hip replacement and the knee replacement, that's not a male hip replacement or a female hip replacement. That's micro. Macro, we gotta, we gotta burn the whole thing down. We gotta burn it down. No, I totally agree because I'm, I'm sitting over here, like bite my lip. Cause yeah, there's bioengineering master's students that they don't know how, what the vaginal tissue is like. And I'm like, don't y'all have like a vagina class? They're like, oh no, like that's not one part of the body we touch. And I'm like, what are you? That's oh. the part that surgery on the most, isn't it? Like, wait, 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 wait. I got some statistics for you. You know, my daughter's in med school uh-huh. and I looked up the statistics of how many med school students, what's the percentage of med school students that are getting any formal training in menopausal medicine whatsoever? What would you be your guess? Did you read, like, what would be your guess? I, percentage of, 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 of OBGYN. I'm sorry, I work in this space. I'm going to say less than 10%. 5%. Yeah. Only yeah. 5% of, of, of doctors studying OBGYN. So we're talking of like a subset that needs to know about menopausal medicine. Only 5% of them are getting any formal education whatsoever in menopausal medicine. What does that mean? That means when you're choosing a doctor at my age, you have to ask a lot of questions. It took me five days to find my most recent doctor, Dr. Molly McBride, who I love with all my heart. If you're in New York City, she is self-taught. She's my age. And she was just like, all right, well, nobody taught me. So I'm going to study up. She is up on every one of the latest studies. She is going to conferences. She is like, makes it her point to know what's going on. She was the one that told me you need vaginal estrogen. She was the one that told me you need Divigel, which is a, a hormone replacement therapy, which is now called menopausal hormone treatment, MRT. We're, we don't say HR no, we don't. hormone. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, you, you see that I'm impassioned about this, all of this. <laughs> Yeah. My blood is boiling as we're speaking, yeah. but it's like, we're not yelling about this enough. So maybe I'm trying to yell for all of us right now. Yeah. Well, we're all yelling in our different platforms, right? Um, well, let's actually, that that's a great segue to our last question, which is what do you think the femtech industry needs right now the most in order to be successful? Money. I mean, at a very basic, again, macro, micro, macro level money. Micro level, women like you, young women and older women working together. Like you and I would make a great team. Oh yeah, unstoppable. If somebody could give us some money. We walked in a room (laughs) together, you kidding me? People would be like, oh no. (laughs) We're no, but we need, we need like, and we, and we need each other. The generations need each other. Like we cannot do it alone. You can't do it as a young person alone. I can't do it as an old person alone. We need a generational coming together of women to say enough. This is not working. Give us the money. We'll fix this. Deb, this has been amazing. You're awesome. Um, listeners, please go to your local indie bookstore, get Lady Parts, uh, subscribe to her Substack, uh, Lady Parts, right? Is that- Yep. Parts, yeah. I think it's like you have to go like debracopakin.substack.com or whatever. It's like look up my last name, which is C O P A K E N. Google Copakin, C O P A K E N, Substack, Lady Parts, you'll arrive. Got it. Yes. Well, thanks, Deb, so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you.
Thank you for listening to my interview with Deborah Kopakin, the author of Lady Parts, a memoir. Be sure to get your copy at your local bookstore. Alrighty, Femme fans, don't forget to register for our jobs fair happening on March 23rd from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Join our new virtual community and become a Femme Pro member for only $14.99 a month to access all of our assets of the Femtech community like our databases and self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Please consider supporting Femtech Focus by giving the show a five-star review and becoming a monthly donor to our organization. Subscribe to our newsletter and know all the new events coming up. All this can be done at femtechfocus.org. Until next time, keep innovating, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.